0: Okay. Sounds good. They they, they do. It's just unfortunately they've been they've been psychologically. uh, We'll give people a few minutes before they (laughs) indulge. But
1: like courses,
0: they can't tell you what's going on. They can't. I mean, come on. They can.
1: They kind of can too, right? Like if they start acting like really violently towards a person, that might
0: be true. yeah. Like Like, hey, something's up here.
1: there's a big difference between correction and this.
2: Yeah.
1: Because I have, on a couple of occasions, had to tell Lulu I don't think so, man.
2: Yeah. And this not at
1: that point. You do the correction and you
2: move on. That's it. <laughs> you, don't, you, don't,
1: you don't tie her to a wall for 24 hours and, and, and not let her eat or her drink. Like, right. that's, that's not, that's not corrective. Right. That's... But- on the, yeah. I mean, it works with children, but... With children. <laughs>
0: Thank you for letting us know if we do have kids. <clears throat> it's good to know. I understand language, tucking that <laughs> one in.
1: <laughs> I was, was going to say, do you notice it's all the dads who took that piece of advice? <laughs> where's, where's,
0: where's Devin when you need her? You know? <laughs> She's just going to, her and Kathy, the voice of reason, right? <laughs> with grandkids, you just bring
2: them McDonald's, bring them back with their parents. Have a good day. <laughs>
1: that is true. <laughs> we have our eyes on you, Dan.
2: <laughs>
1: Give them Taco Bell. And so. so Bentley knows better. <laughs> then, they can some, then, their, then their parents can have some real fun. I put on 10
2: pounds for <laughs> you know yeah, I made a deal with Methodist. Yeah. He goes wow. to church, no matter where it is, what it is, he gets to go to We have a Dunkin' Donut thing
1: with our grandkids. Yeah, exactly. Uh,
2: you go,
1: you get anytime it. they're with Nana, Dunkin' yeah. Donut
0: Run. <laughs> One of my uh, good friends, is uh, he was a pastor for a number of years and then shifted to doing like, discipleship for parents. And uh, he created this little thing called the Donut Date Journal. And the principle is, like, you take your kids out, and you have a journal for each kid. And there's questions that, like, kind of think through just to, like, help you engage with your kid for each stage of their life. Mm -hmm. That's pretty neat. Yeah, We've got a couple for for Maeve. I've taken her out on one, and it's like, okay, we're not going to ask you who your friends are because I know that. (laughs) (laughs) It's a
1: good practice to get into, though. It is, yeah. The interesting
2: one with Bentley is when I bring him to Sunday Night Church, which is a Bob Jones, oh, yeah. uh, Frank James, everybody wears suits kind of a thing, yeah. and he's like all over the place, wild, crawling under the seats, and it's just like the old Southern Baptist thing where you see the ladies in the white hats, you know, scowling at the little kids that were <laughs> behaving. <laughs> How dare you? And I just let him do it anyway. <laughs> He's
1: how old? Five. He can't sit still. No, especially yeah. him. Well, I mean, boys in general. Yeah. Like they need like they have so much pent up energy.
2: That's like, ah, yeah. <laughs> that's that, that's one of the things they show. Like boys are not achieving like girls
1: yes. in schools now. Well because well, school and is the designed for, 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 for women. Like, if you look at the way right. for the, if you look at the way that it's designed, it's like sit in a chair for eight hours.
2: Guys can't do that. We have, e- we all have ADHD. Is that Monday, Tuesday,
0: Wednesday? So yes, for so, this reading schedule
2: for you. Oh, I thought we were gonna meet every day. No, no. Do you want yeah. it like back in school?
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> I, I we could that, cover it all. <laughs> I think Jordan's hair would be gray in a week. <laughs> it's getting there. <laughs> it's getting
0: there. Yeah. Good, morning, good morning, Katrina. Good morning. See a few folks are rumbling in. Yeah, so what I'm doing week to week, uh, guys, is I am giving us basically what the next week's portion of Scripture is going to be, and then encouraging everybody on Bible reading through the week in those particular sections. So as we go through the entirety of the Old Testament, the hope is in the 26 weeks of class, you'll actually read through the entirety of the Old Testament. Hey, man. Do you, you have a book, right? No. A uh, notebook? There you go. <laughs> now you do. Lauren. I was trying to remember. Were you, you? Lauren was here last week, right? Yeah. Was she? I don't know. Uh.
2: Ah.
0: Yeah. Ah, uh, okay. okay. Good morning.
1: Good
0: morning. Good morning, sunshine. It's sunshine, too. Good Your coffee hit yet?
2: Huh? <laughs> 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 i you of that mm. All right. Mm. Wait, the Friday to me.
0: Yeah, so basically, I was just trying to think through like helpful chunks. So, you know, sitting, the idea is at least once during the week, we want to encourage everybody to sit down and read the entirety of the section we're covering in one single sitting. And then, you know, just kind of thinking through from section to section in Genesis. You could break this up further. Eh, it really kind of depends on your reading speed. So I did it this way, this is just my encouragement, and then read it all again a second time. Can't see what? (laughs) How are you?
2: Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Happy Sunday. Happy Sunday to
0: you too. Amen. Okay. Alright, well, we're gonna get started with things for this morning. Thanks for coming back for round two of Old Testament survey. Uh, it's great to have you all here this morning. Uh, let us let's gonna let's open up with some prayer. And then we will dive into our passages of study for this morning. This is going to be Genesis 1 through 11. Just a reminder, if you were not here last week, um, I want to encourage you to get together with somebody who was to go over the notes from last week. Last week, we went over basically doing an overview of the entirety of the Old Testament, and I displayed the message of the Old Testament in three different ways. So I want to encourage you... Uh, to just go ahead and get together with someone to get notes from that session. We're going to slow down a little bit in our speed this morning from going through the entirety into a smaller portion of Scripture. So um, let's pray together before we dive in. Lord God, you are the creator of all things. And you, as you have created, have declared what you have made to be good. And I pray this morning that we would be reminded of your good, creative power, and how that power is at work within us, and how you have saved. We pray that we would understand clearly the promises that you have made to us in Genesis 1 through 11, and that you would be glorified in our time of studying your word and through our dialogue together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, Another note that I want to make just about the class structure and how we're going through the entirety of the Old Testament. I'm going to try to leave some room for questions when I can. Uh, If we can't get around to questions, I'm thinking through other formats Sunday after the service, etc. to address any questions. And I want to encourage you if you think of questions that come up uh, through the different passages we're studying to write them down and even just send me a note so that maybe like week to week, I can kind of get a pile of those, look through them, answer what I can, and then maybe even do the opening couple of minutes just addressing questions from the previous session, okay? So um, just a, a note on questions there, they are welcome. and I'm gonna try to get to them as much as I can, but we have a lot of material that we're covering uh, through the next few weeks together. So welcome back, second week. You guys enjoy last week, yeah? Good, good. I'm glad everybody's waking up. There is coffee for you, okay? Hot coffee and cold coffee for you this morning. Um, thank you, Devin and Matt, for setting that up for us. That was wonderful. Um, this morning, we're taking a turn from looking at the, the entirety of the Old Testament uh, to narrowing in on a single book, and particularly, we're going to be looking at the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, We'll be spending two weeks to study uh, the book of Genesis because of how foundational it is to understanding the rest of the Bible. So I want you to understand this, that Genesis is foundational to understanding the rest of the Bible. But changing topics for a moment, did you ever experience or ever have the experience of being in a class and taking apart a seed? Anybody do that? Like biology Class, a seed.
2: Oh yeah, I did that in um, botany
0: class. Yeah. Okay. So maybe it was your introduction to like a dissection class, like biology. Uh, What what class did you do it in? Botany. Botany. Okay. Was that a a college course? No. No. It It sounds like a like elective. (laughs) Uh,
1: My senior year, all I needed was English. I had to take it for the full year, so I was like, sure, I'll take botany and fashion design and foods.
0: Mm. why not yeah right i I did it in biology and i I often ask myself the question like why do we have to do this right if you've ever been in those classes you go why in the world do i need to take this apart you'd think that we'd be better off learning about like a beanstalk you know you can take that and you can use it and, and and grow it for for food um But there are things that we can learn by looking at a seed that you just don't get from looking at a mature plant, right? Like I've often said that I'm not a great gardener. When we make things within our garden at home, they often shrivel up and die. And I prefer the kind of annual plants or semi-annual, you know, the ones that you just put in the ground and they do their thing, right? Um, But there's something from putting the, the bulb into the ground or the seed into the ground and then watching it grow. There's a difference that we can see very clearly from the beginning to what it becomes. But it's important to know where things start from and what they are designed to be from the beginning. And as Christians, we can marvel at the ingenuity of our creator and putting all that is needed for that entire plant into the seed of our hands right? The, the little seed that becomes this beautiful flower created by God. In much the same way, that's why we're going to take two weeks to look carefully at the book of Genesis. So can anyone tell me um, some of the big examples of the Bible that we are seeding are, that are taking seed in Genesis 1 through 11. Maybe themes that are, are, are going into the ground within Genesis 1 through 11 that then will come to life in the rest of the Bible. Different themes that are popping up. The easy one, we sinful. Okay. So we've got sin. <laughs> the root of sin. Ouch. <laughs> right? It kind, kind of starts off that way. The yes. of God okay the eternalness of God I like that creation we got creation
2: God's faithfulness
0: okay God's faithfulness all right others
2: you can start seeing the genealogy start to form
0: okay so there's a line
2: Just for my brain, are you talking about chapters
0: one through eleven or just chapters one? one through eleven. Okay. Yep. Language. What was that? Languages. Languages, okay. Nice. Okay. Yes. Sacrifice. Sacrifice? Covenant. Covenant. Man, you guys are on fire. I love it. Anything else? Maybe one or two more if you got it. I can't. Yep. Destruction. Destruction. Good. I just over the floor. I was just asking if that was 1 through 11 or if that was... Okay, so these are some some seed themes that we see developing within Genesis one through eleven. Um, Genesis one through eleven also shows us how in control God is, and His sovereignty. Uh, that all the strands of creation and redemption are here at the beginning. You know, creation and redemption. Redemption is promised right after the fall. Right. The, the promise that's going to be developed over the rest of the Bible. I mean, you think about the entire Old Testament, promises that God is making to his people aren't fulfilled until we get to the New Testament in the person of Jesus. So we're talking about thousands of years in which we are seeing the development of redemption come to life. Yeah. Uh, it helps us to understand what God's intent was for his creation, right? There are things like Genesis 1, 26 through 28, the creative mandate, okay? That's going to be super important for us to understand, the creation mandate. Uh, There are going to be things that are simply there that we can understand what's most important in life. And because of all this, Genesis 1 through 11 is referred to again and again and again throughout the Bible. It's interesting when you think of marriage, let's give this example, what Jesus says about marriage comes from where? From Genesis 2, right? He says, this is what God has done. Therefore, do not let man separate what God has made, right? Paul, in his distinction of the relationship between man and woman, husband and wife, what does he go back to? Not a cultural distinguishment. He goes back to a creation mandate for Adam was formed first, then the woman, Right? And it's not just about the order there, but about the creation of what God has made and the distinction of our roles that Adam was created to work the land and have dominion and Eve was there to be his helpmate. So even the essential understanding of biblical manhood and womanhood that's talked about in the New Testament finds its root in Genesis 1 through 11. So that's a good starter. We could probably go on and on about this. There are lots of connections. Um, but let me give you a brief introduction to the book of Genesis. Historically, the context for Genesis is actually hundreds of years after the last events described in the book. Okay, so it's important to understand that that the, the historical emphasis or context for Genesis is actually hundreds of years after the, the last events of the book. This portion of the Bible is written by Moses. As a side note, there has been discussion as to whether or not Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. And you'll find an answer to that question in the handout entitled, Who Wrote the Pentateuch and When? later on in our discussion. So you'll see that in your notes. There's a, a handout uh, that's entitled, Who Wrote the Pentateuch and When? But back to the, concept, uh, the context of this, as Genesis was being written, God was doing something special. He was creating a people of his own, by which he would reveal himself to the world. And this book provides background for that people, telling them where they came from. But most impo- more importantly, it informs them of the problem God is solving through them, the problem of sin, and it prefigures how we will solve it. Okay? So we get to see Genesis describe... God forming a people for himself that he's going to reveal himself to the world through these people and how God is solving the problem of our sin and how he's going to work through us. Aside from the straight historical context, however, the context of when and to whom the book was written, I'll introduce something each week that's called the redemptive historical context, okay? The redemptive historical context. And what I mean by that is that where this book fits into the larger picture of the Bible. Okay? So redemptive historical context is how does this book fit into the context of the entirety of the Bible? <coughs> There's one story that the Bible is holding together. And it's God's work in history to redeem, to rescue, and to save a people by his grace and for his glory. So it's important where a book fits into the long story of redemption. So each week, we're going to look back at that question. What has God been up to? What has he accomplished in his plan so far? And up to the point where we are studying, what is God doing? So the first 11 chapters of Genesis are the very beginning of that history. And in fact, until we hit chapter 3, there is no need for redemption at all. Genesis 1 and 2, we're good. Things are are looking peachy. In Genesis 3... (laughs) We got everything falling apart, right? Just two chapters in the Bible, guys, okay? 66 books in the Bible. A bunch of chapters, just two chapters it took for us to ruin it all, okay? But we will see that this was God's plan to redeem us and to work within us. As we turn to Genesis 3, we'll see that no sooner do our first parents plunge into ruin that God begins to save us from that ruin. every week we'll be checking in to see where God is in that plan, where he is working within the book and and story of redemption. So the theme and outline of Genesis 1 through 11, the theme of these chapters is simple. If you're taking notes, it's this. God reveals his character through the world he has created. say that for you again. God reveals his character through through the world that he created. Make sure you have that. Awesome. So let me give you an outline uh, to see within the book of Genesis. So you can just write down these chapter headings here. We'll start filling them in as we go. So we've got chapters, chapter one and t- verse one to two three, two four to four twenty six. Here I'm going to switch this out. You guys see that better now? Yeah, thank you. Good. 5-1 to 6-8, 6-9 to 9-29, 10-1 to 11-9, and 11-10 to 26. Okay? All right, so this is Genesis 1 through 11, the outline, the kind of different structures that we would see, the different turning points within the book. The story of Genesis 1 through 11 unfolds something like this. There exists an eternal and sufficient God who by sheer verbal fiat has created the universe and all that is in it in order to display his glory. The crown of his created order is mankind, the only creature created in God's image. Mankind display God's glory as they obediently govern the earth while enjoying loving fellowship with God and each other. But our first parents choose to set themselves up as equals with God, disobeying him and incurring the just wrath of God. While expelled from that pristine fellowship with God, they do not perceive the enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. As generations continue, the sin resident in their hearts of mankind goes from bad to worst, and yet the seed of the woman continues. And even partial judgment of the world does not end the sin of the world, And so rebellion against God continues. In a moment, we'll look into how that story plays out through these first 11 chapters of the Bible. But as we do that, I want to leave a question with you, okay? Genesis isn't just historical background for the Bible. It is the foundation for the rest of the Bible. So the question for us to think about together over the next few minutes is this. What would be missing in our understanding of the rest of the Bible if we didn't have Genesis 1 through 11? Uh, it
2: wasn't was it rhetorical? No,
0: no. It's just one question I want you to think about as we're going through this class and we're going to ask it again at the end. What would be missing if we didn't have Genesis 1 through 11 in the story of the Bible? So let's talk about Genesis 1, 1, 2, 25. In your notes it says who is god <clears throat> there exists an eternal and self-sufficient god who by sheer verbal fiat has created the universe and all that is in it in order to display his glory so let's read genesis 1 1 through 5 can somebody read that for us matt can you read that
1: I'm good, man. awesome <laughs> Uh, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There he was an evening, and there was morning uh, uh, one day.
0: Amen. What is the subject of the first sentence in the Bible? The subject of the first sentence of the Bible. God. God is primarily the subject uh, of the creation account. <clears throat> the creation account tells us a lot about who he is and derivative from that, who we are. And so creation tells us about who God is and From our perspective, then, who we are in light of that. So, in this class, I would recommend this practice for your own study as well. We will always ask first, "What does this passage teach us about God?" When you're studying the Bible, that should be the first question you ask yourself. What does this passage teach me about God? Not what does this passage teach me about myself. Well, how do I apply this passage to my life? Always start with the question, "What does this teach me about God?" Only then, when we ask that question, can we rightly understand what it tells us about ourselves as we consider who we are in reference to the creator. So what do we learn about God? First, we learn that he is eternal. Verse one does not begin with an explanation of where God came from. This book about beginning starts with God who never began. It doesn't tell us where God came from. It just tells us that he is. From this first point, we see that God is self-sufficient. We see in verse 1 that he made everything out of nothing. That's ex nihilo. God's word is so powerful that even that which does not even exist yet has to obey it. The third, we see that God is sovereign. What God determines, he speaks, and what he speaks comes to pass. And then finally, God is also revealed as good. Seven times in Genesis 1, God looks on what he has made, and he calls it good. And when the Bible, like our English translations, don't do the the Hebrew any good in this. Okay? <laughs> I wasn't trying to be cheeky with that, but it is kind of cheeky. The The Hebrew word good doesn't just mean Good here it means very good, excellent. Like perfect, okay.
1: basically.
0: basically, yes. And that's just some of what we learn about God in this first chapter, and then we continue to mankind, Genesis one twenty six through two seventeen. Who are we? The crown of His created order is mankind, the only creature created in God's image, who display God's glory as they obediently govern. The earth, while enjoying loving fellowship with God and each other. So let's read Genesis one twenty six or twenty eight. Josue, can you read that? Then God said, "Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish." God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. The male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Amen. Human beings are presented as the crowning act or the pinnacle of God's creative activity. Unlike every other creature, they fulfill a unique role in the created order. He has noticed this. If you read through Genesis 1, and as you were hopefully reading through that last week, as you see the account, especially of day one, we've gotten light and darkness, day and night. God says it's good. He doesn't tell us it's function. He tells us that he created it. But then in the creation of mankind, we see one that they are made in the image of God, but two that they have a role to play for God and for His purposes. <clears throat> that's not to say that the rest of creation is useless. Okay, don't don't hear me saying that, but it's important to emphasize what the text emphasizes, which is the creation of mankind. Maybe like
1: the most important role. Yes. Would be a yes.
0: To Yes. Creation, all good, all functional. The creation of mankind, glorious. <laughs> it's perfect as the
2: correct word, even Amen. though
0: we imperfect. Amen. Perfectly imperfect. <laughs> Notice in verse 26 that human beings are said to be created in the image of God. You guys have probably heard this idea the image of God. We are image bearers of God, the imago Dei. God made everything else after their kind. We see that in 112, 21, 24, 25. But human beings were not created after the pattern of some other creature. But they were created after God himself, in his image, in his likeness. God has reason, intelligence, memory, ethical norms, the capacity to love and have relationship with others, the ability to speak and communicate ideas and so forth. That is what it means that we are created in his image. So we have intelligence, reason, memory, ethical norms, the capacity to love and have relationships with others. And so we have a distinct relationship to God in that we have the ability to have a personal relationship with him. But being made in God's image also carries with it a distinct role in the created order. We are to take these attributes of God, which he has instilled in us, and thereby shine his characteristics over all of the earth. In doing so, we image his glory to the creation. Do you see that there in verses 26 and 28 that man is called to have dominion over the creation? The best way to think of this is that man's job was to make the rest of creation like the Garden of Eden, the place where man had fellowship with God. That's the best way for us to think of it, that his job was to take the rest of creation and to make it so that it represented a place where he could have relationship with God. This is a spiritual reality as much as it is an organizational one. Man acts as a king over and a priest for creation. In that sense, the goal of man's calling in these verses is best expressed In the prophecy of Habakkuk, where in Habakkuk 2.14, it says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, Habakkuk 2.14. And now as we get into chapter 2, we see this focus on mankind play out with a second telling of the account of creation that focuses on Adam and Eve. Here's a clear picture of the peace and harmony of this created order. But this idyllic role for mankind was to be under the great, greater kingship of God. That's why we see the command in verses 15 through 17, which says this, Genesis 2, 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on that day, you eat from it You will certainly die. If they do eat of it, what will happen? They dead. They will die. Notice that I like the Christian standard Bible where it says, you will certainly die. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. This tree was not a magical tree. It's not like they were morally unaware and once they ate from the tree, they'd suddenly know good from bad. Nor are we to think of it as some kind of cruelties placed by God as a way of tempting Adam and Eve. Rather, the tree is a symbol. It was placed right there in full sight to remind Adam and Eve that although they are given the great privilege and many freedoms... In fact, freedom is to eat of every other tree as much as their hearts desired, according to Genesis 2. They are nonetheless to see that that reminder of the tree is a symbol that they are not God. With this tree, God is saying something important to Adam and Eve. He's saying this, I alone have the right to determine what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong in my universe. That's what God is saying through the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, why is Genesis 1 through 2 so critical as a rest or a foundation to the rest of the Bible? It's because it describes what the rest of the Bible is getting back to. Not until Revelation 21 is this fellowship restored with God's perfect people again in God's place under God's rule. And so if you were to study Genesis 1 and 2, you'd see God's perfect plan for gender, for marriage, for work, for physical creation, but so much more in redemption. And that takes us essentially to chapter 3. Genesis 3, 1 through 24. But mankind's first parents chose to set themselves up as equals to God, disobeying him and incurring the just wrath of God. While expelled from that pristine fellowship with God, they did not receive the complete wrath they deserve, for God had already begun a plan to overturn the curse of sin by placing enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Let's look at verses 1 through 5. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, You must not eat it or touch it, or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What a lie! <laughs> The serpent, of course, is the devil. That we you can get that reference from Revelation twelve nine, and he would have us to think. I am like God. I know what's good and what's evil, what's worthy and unworthy of worship, what's weighty and of great consequence, and what's not. It's arrogant. It's idolatrous. Well, literally, it's just insane. But sin didn't work. Both Adam and Eve fall for this lie, and immediately in verses 7 and 8, they are not behaving like gods, but like people ashamed of what they've done. What a lie from the serpent. Now they hide from each other in verse 7, and they hide from God in verse 8. The death that was promised as a consequence in 2.17 has begun. And how does God deal with these rebels? All of them, the serpent, Eve, and Adam, they fall under God's curse. But there's grace. Adam and Eve are not destroyed on the spot. Think about that for a moment, okay? They rebelled, and God could have just wiped them all out right there. But he doesn't. He doesn't destroy them on the spot. He gives hope for redemption. Now look at verses 14 and 15. God's word to the serpent. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are more cursed than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. God says that he is putting enmity, that is hostility, to the point of killing each other between two parties. Enmity means that. Hostility to the point of killing each other. There are three levels of enmity that are displayed here. The first, it says, is enmity between the devil and the woman. What does that mean? Well, it means that Satan and the human race are enemies. Satan is not a friend. He does not want our good. He is our enemy. It may not sound like such a great plan of redemption to us if the first thing that God does is make us enemies to Satan. But consider the alternative. The alternative would be to be friends with Satan and therefore permanent enemies of God. So God is saying that humanity still belongs to him. Satan cannot steal away his image-bearing creatures. They still belong to God, so enmity with God's enemy is a good thing. We see both the negative and the positive in this declaration. The second level of enmity, it says, is where? God says it's between the woman's offspring, literally the seed, and the serpent's offspring, also literally the word seed a pronouncement that humanity will be divided into two camps. One will be called the seed of the woman, and the other will be called the seed of the serpent. Of course, everyone will physically be descendants of the woman, Eve, since she is the first mother of everyone. But nonetheless, some of those physical offspring of Eve will spiritually be the seed of the serpent. That means that they will think, that they will, like Satan, not obey God, but will throughout their lives fall for the deceits of Satan himself. Think of 1 John 1, or 3, 8, where it says, He who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. You can also see John eight forty four 44 as a reference for this idea. Others, though, outside of the seat of the serpent, will seek God. And this verse is saying that, they're, that these two groups are irreconcilable. I think of John 15, 9. In First John three thirteen is references for that idea.
2: Are these references in the notes, or are we expected to write all this down? Up uh, so to you. you are going like three times as fast. <laughs> yeah,
0: made. we got a lot of stuff. <laughs> so is, that,
2: is there a book like this? Is is there a book that we can read this in so that we can catch all this?
0: I've got audio hard. recordings for you. Okay. All right. We'll have that. You can go back. We'll put it up on the website for you. Okay. Now, the third level of enmity is the most crucial. Look again in verse 15. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. It ends by saying those ideas. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Suddenly, God is not talking about a group of people, a line of descendants. Instead, he is talking about one descendant who will deliver the fatal blow to the devil. And end this enmity. Do you see that there? That he's using single, singular pronouns. He and him. Out of the woman's seed will arise one man who will crush the head of Satan. Thereby ridding the creation of the deceiver that initiated this whole mess. However, this one seed will not come out of the battle unscathed. It says that his heel will be struck. So who is this? It's Jesus, of course. See John 1, 31 through 33, Colossians 2, 13 through 15, and Hebrews 2, 14 through 15. It's Jesus that we see in this picture of the one who will defeat Satan. When
1: he's saying heel, he's not saying literally heel. He's saying that
0: it's insignificant, right? Or is that yeah. not well, it's significant enough that when you think of like a heel injury, right? Right. Oh, Lord, have mercy. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. If you've ever pulled your Achilles tendon... Ouch, right? I mean, that, uh, that's taking people out right now. Spring ankle. Yeah, so it's enough to, to strike him to have a significant blow, but not to take him, out. take him out. Yeah. And that would probably be the death on the cross. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Genesis 4. As cre- generations continue, the sin resident in the hearts of mankind goes from bad to worse. Yet the seed of the woman continues. The rest of the Bible is now outworking, uh, the outworking of Genesis 3.15. The three levels of enmity being played out in history. Satan is always trying to destroy, God, destroy God's image bearer. And more specifically, he is using his own spiritual seed to corrupt or destroy the godly descendants of Eve. In this very chapter, we see Cain killing Abel. And the question that may come to our mind is, has the serpent won? Is the godly line ended? The answer to that is no. In verses 25 and 26, Adam and Eve have another son to carry forward the line that will someday birth the Savior. But as the story continues, we are again and again brought to wonder, will Satan win at snuffing out the line? Or will the promises of God be fulfilled? Consider the flood. Was Satan able to corrupt humanity so badly that God would destroy them all? No. By his grace, he delivered one family. Will the promises to Abraham through the line or through whom the seed will come fall to the ground because of his wife's barrenness? The answer to that is no. God will miraculously provide a son even if she's really old in the process. Will the descendants of Abraham be snuffed out by famine? Genesis tells us no. God will send a savior ahead of them to Egypt and their brother Joseph and so forth. Finally, it looks as though the devil has won when Jesus is dying on the cross, but that's actually Christ's victory, not his defeat, for there he defeated sin. Genesis 5, as we move into that section, chapter 5 lists out the godly line from Adam to Seth. We see this theme continue. It's a record of God's faithfulness to his promises. But death lingers as part of the curse. These verses all end with the same phrase. And then he died. And then he died. It's like a constant drumbeat. And And he died. And then he died. And then he died. Reminding us of the dreadful certainty of what awaits sinners in the world, even those who are of the seed of the woman and mean to be obedient to God. They're still what? They're still sinners. So Genesis five, that genealogy is a reminder of God's faithfulness and of our frailty. Genesis six through nine is a big portion for us. It teaches us that even partial judgment of the world does not end sin. Chapter six, we see more of mankind's descent into depravity of, and evil. In fact, and I think it's believed Genesis 6, 8, it describes the entirety of the world as evil. And it's not 6, 8. It's 6, 6, six 5 and 6. The Lord saw the human wickedness that was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and he was deeply grieved. So their depravity isn't like they have some sort of ounce of good within them. It says that every one of their inclinations was evil. In verse seven, God announces the judgment that he's gonna bring to the world He says, I will wipe mankind, whom I created, off the face of the earth, together with the animals, creatures that crawl, and birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. But in verse 8, it gives us promise. It gives us hope. It tells us, Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. In chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, we read about how God separated the waters below from the waters above. That is to say, the clouds and the atmosphere. Then in verses 9 and 10, we read about how he separated the waters of the sea to make room for the dry land. Well, now in this flood account, the sea is bursting forth to swallow up the land and the skies are dumping all their rain. But again, God's wrath is mixed with mercy for he will not deliver, for yeah, he will not fail to deliver his promised seed. In the midst of God's wrath, through the ark, God has himself provided a way of escape and that leads to recreation. Look at Genesis eight seventeen. It says this. Bring out all the living creatures that are with you, birds, livestock, those that crawl on the earth, and they will spread over the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Remember Genesis 1, the command that God gave to Adam to be what? Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Language right from Genesis 1 and 2, plucked out, plopped here again in Genesis 8. God is starting over again, and the old promises of Genesis 3.15 are starting to look like they're intact. Okay, so mankind has become exceedingly sinful. And God has judged him for it. Yet all the while, God has still had grace on mankind and he's still faithful to his promises. But why did we need to go into all that detail about judgment taking on the form of uncreation and grace taking on the form of recreation? Well, I wanna introduce you to something that's called topology, okay? Topology is this. God in his providence has done things in the Old Testament He's caused events, created institutions, used people that are types of things that he will do in the future. God, in his providence, has done things in the Old Testament. He's caused events, created institutions, used his people that are types of the things he will do in the future. That's topology. Generally, these things are about Jesus. God has carried his plan of redemption forward in the Old Testament in such a way to get us ready for Christ. So the flood narrative in Genesis, the uncreating in the Old Testament, in such a way is to get us ready for Christ. It's a picture of the undoing and redoing of the universe, not by water. This time, but by fire. The flood was a real historical event, but the next time will be far, a far more terrible judgment and recreation, and we will be returning to paradise. Oh, hello. <laughs> I don't think you guys want uh, any of these suggestions. I don't know that they're any good. <laughs> Where? Oh, okay, there we go. At the second coming of Christ, sin will be eradicated for good. And I want you to turn for to, for a moment to Second Peter chapter three. Look over to Second Peter chapter three. See this in verses five through seven, and verses eleven through thirteen. Verse 5 says, they deliberately overlooked this. By the word of God, the heavens came into being long ago, and the earth was brought about from water and through water. Through these, the world the world of that time perished when it was flooded. But by the same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Then in verse 11, since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, it is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness as you wait for the day of God and hasten its coming because that on that of that day the heavens will be dissolved with fire and the elements will melt with heat but based on his promise we wait for a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells both historical events and a picture of greater judgment come in the recreation at the end of time. It's a type of judgment prefiguring the final judgment and and that gives us a picture of what topology is. As we move through scripture, we're going to see many other Old Testament events, institutions, and persons prefiguring Christ's work like this. And we arrived at Genesis 10 and 11. And so... Rebellion against God continues. But through creation, but though creation is remade, the problem of sin still remains. We have this glimmer of hope where, like Noah, he's gotten off the boat, things could be good. We see his call to multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion. But then Noah and the entire human race show their sin. <laughs> In chapter 11, the Tower of Babel is where humanity wants a name for themselves. But weren't they supposed to be about the business of promoting God's name and glory and not their own? Furthermore, they they don't want to be scattered over the earth. And they weren't commanded to multiply, or weren't they commanded to multiply and fill the earth and subdue it? But once again, we see mankind ignoring God's right to rule and foolishly determining his own agenda in the world. And as we expect, God will not allow such mutiny. Their plans are halted, and the nations are created, who will not come together again until this part of the curse is reversed when Jesus inaugurates the multi-ethnic church. We actually get to see that come to life in the book of Acts. Insert the entire conflict between the Jewish people and the Gentile people come to life where in Genesis 11, we have all of the world and its diversity together then dispersed. And it's not until we see the the church formed again in the book of Acts that all peoples can be brought together under the name of God. Through what? Through Jesus and through what he has accomplished for our salvation. That takes us through the first 11 chapters. (laughs) So let's get back to that earlier question and then I'll I'll give a couple of minutes for Q&A if I can. The original question that we started at the beginning of this little survey was, what would we lose if God had simply started the Bible with Genesis 12 and God's story of redemption begins in earnest with Abraham, right? If we didn't have Genesis 1 through 11, What would happen if we just started in Genesis chapter 12? Well, we would lose a few important things, like chapters one and two, God's perfect design. The reality of our past and future and our guide for the present. We wouldn't have clarity on gender. We wouldn't have clarity on marriage. We wouldn't have clarity on what it means to be image bearers of God, our role and purpose within the world. If we didn't have Genesis 3 through 11, we wouldn't have an understanding of our sin. Not at least, again, until Romans chapter 1, where we see in the Bible that there's a plain description of the absolute and wholehearted rebellion of mankind against its creator. We would miss a lot of very essential foundational truths if we didn't have Genesis 1 through 11. So what we see is that These these beginning chapters of Genesis are crucial to what God is going to lay out in the rest of the Bible. There are consequences for sinners' actions. But we also see that there is a patient and gracious response from a loving God that redemptive history has begun. God has set out on his course to redeem fallen humanity and the corrupted universe. He is out to restore the pristine environment and perfect peace, love and fellowship that existed in the original creation. To do this, he will have to conquer sin and death through keeping the promise which he made the woman that one of her descendants will triumph over the enmity of Satan. That's where we're gonna go as we continue through studying the rest of the Bible. It's a good news. That everything looks like it's falling apart. There's a promise that redemption is gonna come. All right, a question or two. Let's see what I can cover in this did, moment.
2: Did God know man would fall when
0: he created him? <laughs> he goes right for it. <laughs> did God know that mankind would fall right when he created him?
1: I think he knew before. It. I, think, I think he knew before he started.
0: I, I think we have to say yes. I
1: agree.
0: Because if we don't, then we get the character of God wrong. Okay.
1: He's not all knowing
0: him. Yeah, we would deny everything about his character in that. Which then makes conversations about like salvation, predestination interesting when you think about that. Right? So that if God knew that he was gonna create a people who would fall, can he know who he's gonna save? I'll leave that to your logical questions. Not to mention this brings ultimate
1: glory to God because through redemption, and that was the purpose in the very beginning as
0: well. Amen. Yeah, and so what was the purpose? And I think that's really important. What was the purpose of the fall? To show God's glory. That's like mind-blowing, right? Why would God allow humanity to rebel against him so he could display his glory? Oh. <laughs> Talk about answers that would frustrate anybody, right? That answer frustrates me. <laughs> Any other questions? Yes. yes. Got the, uh, the That's a really good question, Will. Why didn't God just wipe out the serpent? Well, I think we we see if He wants to show His plan of redemption, show His hope, show His power. I think there's also something that can be said of. Just as much as we can emphasize God's sovereignty, we can also emphasize here that he's created us with some sort of agency, right? Um, now, the creation of Satan, we can get into a whole conversation of what, where we find that in the Bible, what that looks like, what we can understand. Can't really cover it in the next minute or two. <laughs> but I think ultimately we have to point back again to the purpose of God's redemptive plan. Why did he not wipe out Satan so he could show his power and glory? That even through rebellion, even through someone who wanted to destroy everything that he created, nothing could create his image or destroy his created image. That he would he would show his excellence and his glory through it. Yeah.
2: I believe also-
0: Yeah, I was about to ask you, what do we do with Job then? Right? Because God allowed Satan to tempt Job. So... No, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Satan yeah. is still the tempter because God cannot tempt anyone. Yeah. To the scriptures. But he kept Satan
2: so that he can tempt all of us in the future to give us free will. Do we obey God or this or
0: that? Yeah. Yeah, I think that the freedom of the will... Uh, Again, I would say agency, probably over free will, just because I think free emphasizes a, maybe a, a state of perfection that we just don't have. We and don't have against, perfect freedom. Yeah. Yeah. Martin Luther's got a great book on this, it's called Bondage of the Will. If you want some more on that, go ahead, and check it out. Um. But, yeah, I, I totally agree that there's agency, that there's a will, that we have, uh, I, I guess, freedom is the right word freedom to make choices, but that freedom's limited. Uh, it's not perfect, right? Creation, only, the only perfection that we see within the idea of freedom exists in Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 3, that freedom isn't perfect anymore. So, yeah.
1: I'm, I, I just started thinking, and then I went to Joe, does Satan tempt? Joe, or does he test Joe? Because in the Bible, yeah. in CSB, it says test, and I yeah. I do think there's a difference there, right? Yeah. Because I, I think Job chooses to allow to be tempted, right? And in, in how he responds to some of the stuff that's happened towards the end, mm. right? But throughout throughout the time frame of the, the test, if you will, yeah. Or, uh, yeah, it's, it's all testing. Like he's trying to test Joe mm-hmm. to see where his weaknesses
0: lie. Test temp. I think we have a lot of similarity. You yeah. You
1: don't think there's a difference there?
0: I think there. I think there could be. I think. I think. But, it's tempting yeah.
1: is like. I don't know. I think there's a difference. Like in the way I've read the Bible, I think there's in my mind, I've I've read a difference between the two.
0: Mm. I yeah. Know, I
1: don't
0: know. Yeah, I'd have to look at the exact wording. Of not just in the English, but I think in the Hebrew it may clarify what word is used and the, the like, the range of its meaning. Right. You know. I don't have that in front of me, and I don't know the word for test or tempt off the top of my head in Hebrew. Do you know it? No. I can get it to you. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, I could pull it up too, but yeah. I think that'd be that'd be an interesting little word study to see how it's used. Give us a good clarity. One final question. Anybody? Can you uh,
2: give us the stuff you read so that we can reread it? Because it goes so fast. Like, I, pers- I actually highly value everything you said. Yeah. But I cannot write it all down.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I can try to make that available to you. Yep. That
2: would be sweet. Yeah. Thanks, sir.
0: You're welcome. Yeah, if you're a reader and not a listener, we will have audio recordings of the, the class, but yeah, if you want some reading material, I'll get you my notes. All right. Awesome. Cool. I'm surprised nobody asks about like, the, the age of creation. That's, That's like, a spicy one. Oh, whoa, sway, way, I set him up. <laughs> There's lots of conversation around that. There? How old is the well, Earth? The
2: problem with that is that that requires, uh, first of all, there may not be an actual answer to everybody's question. Well,
0: yeah. Yeah. And it would require like a of class. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it would require a lot of coverage of material. But I'm surprised, nonetheless, that nobody asked about it. So you all must be of a particular camp. We all respected the time limit. Amen. All right, guys. Well, let me pray for us. Um, Thanks for joining us. And again, if you come up with any other questions based on Genesis 1 through 11, write them down, send them over to me, and I'll try to address a couple more um, at the beginning of next week's class. Father, thank you for today. We thank you that you are the creator, God, who has made us in your image and in your likeness. God, we recognize the weight of our rebellion against you. And you could have wiped out all of creation. You could have left us without hope, and you would have been just in doing so. Yet you have designed us and made us for this time and allowed all of these things to take place to display your glory and your power. May we reflect your image well today and may we praise you as we worship with other believers this morning in your power and your grace and your mercy to save. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.